Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Two Sides HR Podcast. I am Jim Davis, your host. If you are an HR professional or employer that is overwhelmed by the scope of change you need to make to be up to date with the needs and requirements of candidates and employees, this is the episode for you. My brilliant guest has a special talent for diagnosing problems, creating a step-by-step roadmap for reaching immediate, intermediate, and long-term goals and milestones for employee-centered projects. It is my absolute pleasure to have with me today Mindy Honkoop, an HR professional and advisor, an expert with a healthy dose of functional positivity. Thank you so much, Mindy, for taking the time to join us today. Why don't we jump right in? Before the mental health solutions that were were talked about pre-pandemic were, uh, you're burning out because you've worked all day. Uh, you had to work all that time, you know, with your housework or whatever, taking care of your kids. Before you got to work and you had to drive to get there and then you, you get home and you had to do all the other stuff. And uh, people are like, well, we got to get our stuff done. How do we solve burnout? But people still have to get their stuff done, which is, I think, probably the wrong assumption. But that was the assumption that was made. No one was willing to let go. No leaders or employers were willing to let go of the productivity half of that. So they're saying, okay, well, you can, you know, on your drive in, that's your that's your chance. You know, just think about happy thoughts and or you hear this a lot, plan your day, right? in your car. So like somehow me being in my car, uh, thinking about work the entire time is going to make it me less burned out when I get to work, you know, and it was, it was always like, let's fill in the gaps. What few gaps there are, those are your chances to address mental health. And of course that's all out the window right now. I mean, it was always ridiculous, but now it's even worse because we're not driving to work. Most of us, um, we did the, the gaps we're using for real life stuff. You know, when I have 15 minutes, I can go make a sandwich or I can do some dishes or I'm not going to plan out the next part of work. It's just, man, that was like the cutting edge. In my opinion, that was like the cutting edge of thought on like, how do you address burnout? Yeah. And it puts so much responsibility back on the employee and much of the wellness initiatives were very reactive. They were more mental health versus mental wellness and really rethinking what are we offering? How are we even creating awareness of the need, helping employees become mentally aware and self-aware of who are you? What do you value? All the things to help them even recognize, oh, this is something that I could use support in. I see this as a need for myself. And here are the things available to me and how can I access them and utilize them? We weren't even really good at doing that from a reactive stance. No, you're absolutely right. When you're at the point where you're reacting to something, you're it's just window dressing and, and touching up that you're you're doing. You're never gonna be able to address the core problem because it suggests it's baked into your into your organization. And then I think there is this idea if it's, if you're not clearly coming out and saying it, that you have to have a mental illness to require mental health help. Um, and without that clarity, um, the person might think, well, I can't get help because I, I'm not schizophrenic or I don't have a, you know, clinical depression. As far as I know, they might be thinking a uh, mental health challenge is the same thing as a mental health diagnosis. Right. And then so just the words that we use and they get used over and over again, they become buzzwords. It's uh, it really misaligns what the employers are trying to do 
or hoping to do. Yeah. And, you know, often you'll see, oh, we need to build resiliency. Employees, be resilient. Resilient. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what it means. You, you know, you probably know. I mean, the whole thing is like the work causes burnout. It's a workplace phenomenon. This is recognized by the WHO. It's the, you know, as much as uh, eating sugar leads to type 2 diabetes, working too hard leads to burnout. The responsibility, the cause of that is therefore not the employee, but the employer, right? So resiliency is a great way to do the same thing that they're doing with like the whole recycling program. Like consumers need to use less plastic to solve the plastic crisis. Employees need to become stronger to adversity in order to, in order to avoid the mental health crisis, right? Right. It's, it's almost a way as saying the workplace is immune to being a part of the solution. We don't want to take the time to think about what might that look like for us to do that together in order to, as an ecosystem, become resilient. Yeah, that's a major problem. Mm. Before we start recording, you were talking about some of the advisor work that you were doing, and you were starting to get into sort of helping employers diagnose, I guess, the rift between their goals and how they think they're going to get there. You had some pretty interesting ideas about how to get them to realize the path towards actually achieving something, because I think a lot of employers know these things are important, yeah. um, and it's not just mental health concerns, but it's so very difficult to go from, we think we need to do something about this to we've taken the first steps that are going to work towards, towards that goal. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. And I think a lot of that goes back to the why. And so the companies that I feel have been able to answer that question really well, have really done the work to create a strong foundation of why does this company exist? Who are we together? What is this culture? What are the principles that guide our behaviors and our decision-making? And how does that tie to some key principles or values that we want to hold true to every day? And we weave that into everything we do. It truly drives how we interact together, but also with our customers. And then how do you, how does that look like from a people perspective? And where are the gaps as you grow that you're seeing things start to slip or get messed? And then how would having a strategic business partner that is able to really be the heart of making sure all of that is happening really well and being able to see and understand what are our success measures? What was the why of why we put this in place? What metrics of success have we tied to each one of these things? And how are we listening to employees in order to see if these things are still successful or not and really manage them as projects? Because it's not just, or programs, sorry, I used the wrong word. Projects are one and done. And often I think HR will roll out project. Okay, done. It's there, checklist, where really it's a program. And so we need to think about from a program manager lens, if we have built a clear why, put the employee at the center, and now have clear success measures that we can track on a regular basis to see if this still is the right solution or not then we can almost be ahead of the business. And when we start to see things that 
are clear indicators that we're no, it's no longer successful, then why is that? Why is that program no longer meeting the needs? Why are they no longer tied to those business drivers? And you are able to get those answers because you have the right listening channels, I like to say, of the right signals in which you're allowing that employee voice to be heard and for them to speak into the solution. Because once again, they're at the center of that and they're at the heart of that. And your values are tied to that. They're human-centered. And as that program manager, you are able then to advocate and sponsor and highlight that at the executive level and be able to challenge people if things are starting to look haywire, you're ahead of the curve and you're able to have the right conversations in order to get the buy-in to be able to initiate change and iterative change and really think about, you know, small changes as behavior, because if we're trying to ask people to take on too large of a change, then they're just going to resist it. So how can we actually break that down? Almost if you think of a product roadmap, how might you actually think about how can I drop small change over time that people have a chance to adopt and to learn from and try it on? And how are we creating those feedback channels for them even to know if it's working or not? Because when we're trying something new for the first time, we're not going to get it right. (laughs) Like we're not perfect. And what are those points that we're actually able for people to get that feedback and say, hey, that worked, but maybe this could be even better. And that requires trust and psychological safety. All it comes down to and trust and psychological safety, as we were talking earlier, buzzwords now and people misunderstand what is trust and what is psychological safety? You can have trust one-on-one with everyone because it's an individual construct, but psychological safety is that team and how we may have individual trust for each other, but in that team, there's something about the dynamics that are breaking down where we do not have psychological safety so that the individuals aren't able to show up truly as themselves as a team. And so then as a manager and as individuals on those teams, how can we start to create space for not a manager to have to take on all the responsibility? I think some organizations put so much onus on the manager to own psychological safety when really it's a team dynamic that everyone needs to own. We all lead that. So how have we created the space for employees while also giving them some autonomy and trust and the ability almost to control and to own that, to be able to speak into what does team health look like for us? Maybe let's set some norms that we agree on together that tie back to our values. Once again, alignment and consistency is very important. And how does that show up for us successfully? And then on a quarterly basis, check in and see how are things working or not. And maybe some of those things we don't need anymore, but now we can each hold each other accountable. So if we mess it up, After a team meeting, we can make sure we take the time because hopefully maybe we've actually set time between our meetings so we're not moving one to the next (laughs) to the next. We can reflect and clean it up together. And thus then the team is taking that on and it's not all on the manager. Just some thoughts. (laughs) That's, I mean, it's very well thought out. That's great. That's great. Really great advice. Um, There are some entry points that you addressed, of course, but that I'd like to get into a little deeper Uh, particularly the psychological safety part, when an organization has identified that they have an issue like, like mental health challenges Mm -hmm. that aren't being addressed or they're create, they're worsening or exacerbating mental health challenges that their employees are having. They're rarely in a position where that psychological safety exists. Um, 
And then when you talk about what managers have and what understanding they have of it's natural for our leaders to say, okay, managers, you're working with these people, so you should know, but it's rare for employees to be sharing the full depth and breadth of their true feelings with their managers, especially at an organization that hasn't really been thinking about this. And that's a lot of organizations. So you had this one moment in the very beginning where you have to come out of the gate saying, we're taking this seriously and we need to, we need the buy-in of everybody, of our leaders, of our managers, and you, the employee who probably doesn't trust us right now, um, has no real reason to. And if you, and then they empower the manager to take that feedback who they already didn't want to talk to, right? That is a, I think it's so hard to get that right. And it's like when you're a kid, right? And you're in school and the teacher says, asks you for feedback and it's just crickets and silence, right? It's an awkward moment. Yeah. Those, the good teachers keep going and find a way to engage the, the, the student, the teachers that aren't, haven't learned it yet, or maybe have checked out, think that that means that there's no questions and there's no input. Mm-hmm. Of course there is, right? Yeah. How do you, when you meet that silence in an, in an organization, how do you make sure you don't make a critical mistake or dozens of critical mistakes that undermines your whole effort right at that moment? Yeah, that's a powerful question. <laughs> I think that you, there was a really great research that came out in, I want to say August of 2021 by Adam Grant was exactly around this, around psychological safety on teams and how they looked at managers who ask for feedback versus managers who ask for feedback with context. So sometimes employees may not feel safe being able to give feedback because they're, that's such a big con, like, what do I give feedback on? There's nothing specific to give feedback on. So maybe, and this is also as a leader, being able to give them something specific, but also showing that you're open, that you're not perfect, that you are giving a space to say, hey, these are things I'm working on. This, Me and my manager are working on these things together. And these are two things this quarter that I want to focus on as a leader that I know are gaps for me. And I'm committing to doing that. So I might show up differently than I have in the past because I'm trying out some things to mm-hmm. grow in these two things. And I want to be open and to your feedback, whether that's in our one-on-ones or in the team meeting, you know, let's, these are two areas that I would love for you to have room to, I give you permission to push back on me because I'm going to need your feedback to know, is this working or not? And being able to drive that and be consistent in creating space within your one-on-ones for that, but also your team meetings. And once you start to model that, often you start to see people try it on, get a little bit more comfortable, but it's going to create iterations, right? So it's going to be constantly checking in. If you aren't hearing from someone, ask again, ask, ask, ask again for the feedback if you're not hearing anything. And maybe even mention during the team meetings, hey guys, in our one-on-ones, this is so important for me. I haven't heard from anyone, so I don't know if I'm getting better or not. And I care so much about this team and, and leading you. And these are areas that are keeping me from being a good leader. And I, please, over the next week, think about it, you know, give them time and then ask again. And it's because it's a slow muscle for everyone to build. But 
you know, any managers can do that without the organization. So you could start from a grassroots effort and up because once people start to see high functioning, high functioning teams, they start to wonder, hey, Bob, what are, what are you doing over there? Because I would love to see some of that. Like, oh, well, I read this book. I just started. I read that Adam Grant research. I just started to try this out. And it, it, the first time it's never going to work. Like you always, it's going to take iteration and try asking the question in a different way. And sometimes it takes seven times to hear something before employees actually realize, oh, my manager is asking for feedback on these two things. And it's always going to take that one brave person to be able to speak up. And then how has you as a manager, how have you celebrated that? And how have you highlighted that? to say, yes, when I say this, I truly mean it. And thank you for taking the time to give that. When other people start to see that, that's also more accountability and that you're giving them permission and you're celebrating those wins. I think these are all kind of signals to send to build on the trust that you truly mean it. And if you mess up as a leader, you know, we all are humans. We're all emotional and might be having a bad day. If someone steps up and gives feedback and you get defensive, own it right away. Don't wait. clean it up right away to say, hey, I didn't respond to that. You are brave right now and you gave exactly what I asked you for and I gave you permission and I just shut you down and that wasn't okay. And I'm really, I'm really sorry. I like to talk about that moment too, yeah. because it reminds me of, I forget which episode of The Office it is, but where there's like the suggestion box. I think it's the oh, suggestion yeah. box episode. And basically... No, is it? Yeah, I think. And Michael's like, no, no consequences come in. You guys can air your agreements to say whatever the issue is. And of course, Toby, the HR guy's like, oh, that's a terrible idea. And they start saying things and very serious issues arise that need to be addressed. And now there are consequences, right? It's a, it's actually not that much of an exaggeration of what can happen in real life, right? You put people in a room and say, you can say anything to me. They're going to say some things that you're going to feel obligated to act on, but you told them it was safe. How do you navigate that issue? I think managers have a different ability than HR does in That's that regard. Um, I think as a manager with a grassroots effort, it's also people may be saying things in one-on-ones and not in teams. And I think being able to be transparent about what you're hearing and being able to show the progress towards what it is that you're working on. You can also get feedback on that because maybe you think you've made progress and you're talking about what that looks like. And then people maybe can step up and say, well, hey, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then they, if they're only speaking one-on-ones and not team meetings, that's another opportunity to say, I'm listening to you. Here's all the things good, bad, and the ugly that I'm hearing. I'm not just going to show all the things that are cheerleader. I'm going to show the true nuggets of wisdom that you know are not easy to hear, but they were so good because it was an opportunity for me to maybe try something different. I learned and it's challenging to learn and it's hard to learn, but you're modeling that then of how you take that for them and, and what that looks like for them growing in that process and how you help work with them through those difficult times when it's them receiving the feedback. It's all of you together growing and learning. But I think as an HR organization with employee engagement surveys or anytime you're gathering the voice of the employee, it's important to report back on what you heard in all things and why it is that you are going to focus on one or two things from that. And what is it that you're specifically going to do? 
And what are you hoping to see in the environment as a result of what you're doing? So you're clearly identifying the problem and the why and what it is that you're going to try out. And for the period of time, you're going to try it out. And then you're going to come back and say, did we make progress or not? This is the first time. And usually iterative organizations do this, the learning organizations, because they're going to say, you know what, we're, this is the first time we've done this. It's not perfect. And we don't think we're going hit to hit it right the first time. So, and we know there's going to be some growing pains through this, but we're going to continue to listen to you and we're going to continue to report back what is and isn't working. And what are we doing differently to respond to that? Yeah, that's really, really good point. Really well said and well thought out as are all of your points. And I'm very happy to have you on the show today. <laughs> I was always such a, it's such a privilege to talk with you, Jim. I always enjoy our conversations. Yeah, it's great. It's great. You know, it's, I think that you're one of the things you're particularly good at is really laying out the total path from the beginning to the end. And these, one of the reasons I think we have to keep talking about these things is because it's not, you can't hold it all in one spot, right? And no one person can own the whole thing. Um, you need a guide really, if you're going to be trying to do, do something like this, because it'll be so easy for you to get lost. Yeah. One of the other things I like about you is how positive you are, which makes us very different. <laughs> I think I once got labeled as grumpy uh, really? by by somebody talking about my podcast, uh, my former podcast, but still. And I was like, yeah, because you know what? It's a workplace is a rough place. Mm. There's a lot, of, a lot of terrible stuff happens. And we're all in it together. And it's so just so human, like workplaces are just so human. And when you look at the HR element of workplaces, especially those that are are um, doing it right. Mm. I mean, they really have to process like a lot of humanity, like real human issues, like, you know, domestic violence and, and people having mental breaks and, and people doing things they're not supposed to do and maybe even breaking the law. Um, you know, you really have to get into the trenches. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is because uh, there's an issue with getting managers in the right way to do all this, which is surrounding vulnerability. Mm. There, if you look at vulnerability from the lens of emotional intelligence, not all people are designed to be vulnerable. Right. In fact, quite a few people aren't, especially managers. I don't have the data on that, but just in my limited experience, because you have to be authoritative. I mean, to be a manager, there's a couple things going on there. You have to be authoritative because that's what you're told you're supposed to do. You got there because you probably worked hard or at the very least sought that role. And so you feel like you earned it, right? So now you're in a place where, man, it's going to be hard to eat crow and say, I'm a, you know, I'm a flawed person. And that's why you guys should be comfortable being vulnerable with me is because I'm looking at how vulnerable I am. What's your advice for, I guess, the next level up leaders or, or for HR to get, if possible, those managers that aren't going to be good at this right out of the gate? to understand the value and to be able to successfully navigate around vulnerability. Yeah. Cause I don't think that isn't, I don't think we're all born with these things and we don't know what we don't know. It's the same with psychological safety. We expect our managers just to know what that is and start doing it. <laughs> and, and what are we doing to set our managers up to be successful as they enter into that role? And especially for, I know you asked for next level, which are probably more experienced, but for those first time managers, what have we done to help them shift their mindset 
from being an individual contributor to being a manager? What are the things that we have helped them be able to become self-aware about themselves and who they are? And then understand there's so many different leadership tools and resources. I think a lot of the old L&D training made people feel that they had to take on these all these different tools and resources and put themselves 100% into it, even though it didn't feel like it fit. Because, or like a cookie cutter, when you see other leaders, well, I guess I have to be that. But the thing is that we all have our own unique who we are. Everyone's unique. And that's what makes it so awesome. That's why we want to have a diverse workforce. We don't want all our leaders to look the same. We want them to shine as they are. And it's about then finding what are those tools and resources that are going to work for them. It's like no two people, the organization methods can work for two people. It has to be different. You can't cut and paste from one to the next. And so what are we doing within our workplaces to truly understand who our leaders are, help them understand who they are, and then be able to help them navigate and select autonomously. What are the, where now I know my gaps, right? Now I know what things are my weak areas that I want to grow in to become better at this. And then I can select from a menu of the things that I want to try on. And by the way, I can't do all 20. I think that's another thing. A lot of these trains just throw up all the things. <laughs> and then you become overwhelmed and you just want to run away, right? Or you don't retain the knowledge because you're not using it for that moment and you have learning decay. And so how can we create these micro opportunities for them to learn a new behavior because once again, it's creating a new habit. It's the plasticity of the brain. We need to create new neural pathways of being able to do this new thing that we haven't done before. And then how are we allowing them to try one or two things and then giving them time to do it? So we're not forcing them, right? They're cho choosing based on the selection of what's important right now, based on what I'm having to do right now in the workplace. So there's some control and autonomy in that, right? Which is really great to be able to give that to our managers and then give them the chance to try it on. And then how is it working? And then how have we provided in there a coach or someone that's going to be able to be a safe place for them to speak with and really think through how to reflect on how did that go? How did that feel? And if it didn't feel good, what didn't feel good about it? And what are some things that we might commit to in this next week doing differently? And let's sink back and see how that worked. Like that coaching aspect is often missing. And it's hard sometimes to find an internal coach that someone truly feels safe talking to. Because if you have psychological safety issues across the organization, that will show up within that coach relationship. So I think some of the exciting things we're starting to see for the companies that you were talking about that are rethinking and care about this, they're looking to a lot of how do we do external coaching or micro learnings and there's new HR technology that actually has democratized the price and has thought about these things and truly wants to build around the employee and the manager. And I've actually used human science and neuroscience to really create some thoughtful learning opportunities for managers that really are adding value and enabling that change to happen. A lot in there. <laughs> All great. I particularly like the, uh, the the comments you made about getting too full when you're doing trainings. Yeah. I feel like it's it's so hard just to get everyone, especially if you're going to do like a mass training, to get everyone organized and they're taking time. So it's like, all right, we're going to do an all-day event or a half-day event, and we're just going to... But, I mean, as anyone who's ever been to a museum knows, 
within an hour, you're full. You're full of information. When you, because what, what a museum is, is all new information, yeah. right? It's the same thing with training. At most, an hour, you have an hour. And maybe, maybe a lot less than that. And then after that, it's just noise that's mm-hmm. going to, you might have remember a moment here, here or there. But yeah, no, those, so trying to do all that in one training is just not going to work. So then it becomes making sure you have the right training for the right issue, right? Yes. Yeah. And how are you then building the success measures around this training? And what are the changes that you're hoping to see as a result? And are you actually seeing those outcomes or not? And and you can use your engagement surveys. A lot of them talk about the, you know, the impact of leaders and the trust and all of that. But many miss the opportunity to actually talk to the managers. And so have you surveyed your managers even before creating this training? What what do they feel confident in? What do they not feel confident in? Because I'm sure if they don't feel confident in things, they're not. Those are the things they're going to. They're not, not going to tell you. Right. And what do they want to see? What do they want to grow in? So now you've included their voice. There's some them buy in there because you've heard from them. And then when you roll something out, you can say, "We heard from you based on our engagement, based on where your baseline is. This is why we're doing this, and why we feel it's important." And then like, wow, they actually listened to me. <laughs> I, I get this. That's, that's amazing. And, and being able to, then you have that baseline and then after the training and then maybe subsequent other months, like how are they feeling? Did, did they grow in confidence? And if not, why not? And then we can iterate once again, it wasn't a project, but the program <laughs> and, and learn it's always changing. It's always different. I remember talking to somebody whose name I can't recall. Um, their whole thing was his organization was all about one-on-ones, you know, that's like make them as frequent as possible, largely informal. Um, and then they had a big training program that was available at any time. So they had like a, a factory workers okay. that don't have a dedicated terminal, right. To yeah. sit down and, and spot what they had was on demand training at workstations. So it was like, you're trying to install this part. You don't remember how to install the part. You call up the video on how to install the part. You watch it. Now you can install the part right then and there. And it was brilliant. You know, part of it was they had to have very extensive sets of information. I know that's not easy to build or or cheap, especially since most people do training by buying modules from other organizations. Mm -hmm. But the idea of saying it's okay for you as an employee to watch a video in the middle of your job if it's going to make you do better mm. just that like little concept alone i think has a lot of real really important value because yeah. why why not right yeah yeah because you maybe now they're here so many things have happened on the on that factory floor and if they're able to take a moment to step out and get what they need that missing question then just a level of competence and self-worth and going back into the work you probably have a higher quality of product coming off of that factory floor than someone who was uncertain didn't have the time and then has to go home and maybe swap shifts with their partner to take care of their kids and there's no way they're going to have the time to even though they want to they don't have the time when they get home because there's all the things that you have in your personal life yeah yeah, no, absolutely. So you want, and that's, it brings up a larger issue, but that is who has the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's always like the major issues are always the technology is moving too fast for us to learn it. So we can't keep up. 
no one has any time. Our skills are rotting on the vine. And, you know, by six months from now, they're not going to be valuable anymore. Yeah. So employers that are wanting to get the ROI out of these kinds of efforts to try and enable their workforce, I think they really have to be willing to take a temporary uh, hit on productivity. Yeah. To do because it's not just investment in money, like you have to invest real time, not on your own time. Right? right. And I wonder if it's a way of reframing the performance or the productivity from going from if a factory floor, you're probably thinking about um, outputs. But maybe if you were to reframe around outcomes, like customer satisfaction around the quality of the product, or you know, different outcomes, which is just outputs, then maybe that training actually improves the output and the outcomes, the greater outcomes that actually tie to the business drivers. So maybe it isn't a productivity loss. That time actually has helped result in greater return on value from a a greater holistic outcome perspective, but just possibly. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading, I forget what it was, but I was listening to a very interesting thing about the difference between Japanese car manufacturers and U.S. car manufacturers, and they they kind of did a some organ some um, companies did a, a trade of workers, and the U.S. car systems were all about output. You have the the factory does not stop mm-hmm. if it unless you know it absolutely has to. You just keep going. If that means you're introducing errors and problems and mistakes into the vehicle at the time, so be it. Their solution, their rounding error was at the end, they paid a whole nother set of people to basically thoroughly inspect the vehicle and then make all the the various kinds of corrections that have to make at that point. And this Mm -hmm. is, as far as I can tell, largely the operating model of most U.S. car manufacturers. It also required uh, employees to be specialists in just the one thing they're doing, classic Mm -hmm. assembly line, right? In Japan, the managers had to learn how to do everything that every employee had to do and vice versa employees had to learn each other's jobs they were based on making sure that when that vehicle came out of the assembly line it was flawless so you're not cranking out as many cars but you are saving so much time and resources in unimaginable depths and levels and they brought that that it's totally worth it i mean it's clear it's clear as day you want you don't want the car tires falling off at the end of the day right um they brought the Japanese team to the United States to help train some people at certain factories, but within six months they had reverted to their old ways. Hmm. I always, I think about that a lot, actually. Um, there are these, and I realize, you know, our cultures are very different and there's a lot of reasons for that, but there, there are other ways. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the poorly performing one that you're stuck with right now. Almost like the thing that's coming to my mind when I hear you say that is slow down to go faster. Yeah, absolutely. And take the time, like rethinking, I mean, how, how, how actually productive are we if we're in one meeting to the other meeting, another meeting and Zoom, it's even worse booking <laughs> all of this. And you know, we could use, though that's just a default setting. Like in Google and Outlook, we can change the time of the meeting to be default from 30 minutes to 25 minutes. And let's give people five to 10 minutes between meetings. And let's just make that a company-wide effort. 
or commit to um, at minimum half a day of free, you know, half a day, one day a week of white space time where yeah. people actually can focus and be creative. And there's so many different, those are just minimal ideas, but there's so many things if you bring a room of people in and really brainstorm around meetings. I was talking with someone yesterday around this and their team did that and came out with incredible ideas on how their organization could improve the meeting problem. Because that was one of the things that when they spoke to employees was at the top of the list of burnout. And yeah. so they took the time to actually have an offsite and collaborate and allow employees to speak into a solution and prioritize it and try it out. And there's incredible ideas. It was amazing. We need to we need to think about how, as an organization, to be resilient. How are we putting back these barriers and setting those boundaries so that people have the opportunity to be human? We're not computers. We can't always be on and have that time to find that. I loved the way I read this article. I called it work-life harmony because there's no balance, <laughs> but I like the work-life harmony. <laughs> Harmony, that's a much better way to look at it. Yeah, I thought so. I can't remember what article it was, but. It's not just the organizations that are causing the troubles with the work-life balance. Like it's people themselves. The other day I went to Taekwondo for my daughter and I had to catch up on some time. Um, so I just worked from there and mm. I felt clever while I was doing it. Felt good, you know? Look at me making the most use of my time. And I think that there's a trap there. Let's mm -hmm. see if I can find a way. There's a trap in the first time that you cleverly think of a way to use your time, especially if it's for productivity, the all, the all knowing, all seeing um, purpose of American life productivity. But the return, the diminishing returns happens because if it's the first time you feel great and you're clever, but the next time it's needed and mandatory. And after 15 or 20 times, it's a slog, right? Humans are so easily distracted by that first thing and thinking that it's going to be that way every time. And they do it to themselves. So leaders and, or and people, organizations have to help employees stop themselves from taking up all of their own time. Right. In whatever, whatever cost, because it's critical. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of like, that's where that self-awareness is so needed and the opportunity to create that equity of training for managers and employees to become self-aware. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've talked about it to death, but it's worth <laughs> noting that the big concern going into, uh, into the pandemic with so many people going remote was that they wouldn't be productive enough. That was always the argument before, despite all the research and all the trials before the pandemic that said remote work is a net benefit um, for everybody. It was always, well, they, they'll slack off at home as though you can't slack off in an office. But then we all went home, a lot of us, and then we the productivity went up mm -hmm. because people put themselves to task even when they're not being put to task. And then it was like, for a while, there was like, great, problem solved. But it wasn't solved. People were working themselves to death. Yeah, yeah, same problems. I think a lot of organizations have grappled with that and they've come up with solutions and stuff and, and they live in the reality of that. But I think it's worth thinking about that left to their own devices, people in this country at least will work themselves raw. Yeah. Yeah. And, 
And if they're not, then there's a greater issue because if they become disengaged at the workplace and they're seeking, because I mean, at the core, we want to matter. We want to make a difference. Yeah. Humans want to be a part of something, a part of community. And we've lost a lot of sense of community. And some, for some people, workplace is that one place of community. Absolutely. It is. If that community as you know, with, I, I'm a, I, I'm a, I love Brene Brown, but I think it's so important for in community if you are valued, seen and heard in that community and you have the opportunity to matter and to make a difference. Those are the highly engaged organizations that you, you're caring about people. You're not going to get everything right, but those are the people that are going to you. And you have to be careful in that, too, that you aren't abusing your highly engaged employees. Otherwise, they will get to disengage because they get burnt out. We can't all sustain this high level of activity. And so how are we rethinking how we measure well-being in the organization? And what does that mean? And let's not assume what that is for our employees, because in each workplace ecosystem, that might look different. And for people with, with companies with strong cultures and people with a strong sense of their values, if you're hiring right, it's about aligning to those values and you want to be able to have diversity and be able to have that culture add. So I'm not saying culture fit, but there needs to be this organizational alignment because you will often find different types of people are meant for different types of workplaces and different ecosystems. And they're able, if you hire really well, you will find that alignment. But if you have all the things, you're doing all the things right, but if you don't have a sense of that well-being and if you're not measuring it, you're going to eventually get to burnout. And and we're always thinking about how do we get the, you know, disengaged, usually there's not a lot we can do there, that most companies say in surveys. And so they think, okay, we can make a difference for those who are uh, slightly disengaged. They're not yet actively disengaged, but they're on their way there. We can move the needle there. But we need to also pay attention to our actively engaged people. Let's not just focus on the data that the yellow says. But what is the green saying? And and how are we making sure that we are listening to everyone, no matter what stage they're in? Your engaged employees are your high are not always, but are often your high performing yes. employees. Are your most what is it? The poachable. Your most poachable employees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. You really got to take care of them. You do. And there, there's that just that weird belief that, you know, burnout only happens to disengaged employees, but it's, it happens disproportionately to engaged employees, yes. to high-performing employees, I should say, yeah. uh, because they burn themselves out working so hard for you. Yeah, because they have that high level of organizational commitment. I we're about out of time, unfortunately. Oh, my goodness. I know. <laughs> that went by so fast, Jim. I know. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a real pleasure. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for all the support that you have all given me and for listening. All of my links are in the description. This is Jim Davis with Two Sides HR Podcast.